Um, we are in the Sermon on the Mount, and we are concluding the Sermon on the Mount. I was just telling someone this morning that we have taken, we started the Sermon on the Mount in, at the end of January. We're now at the end of August, and my word, it feels like, I don't, I mean, it feels to me like we've gone too fast. Like, I cannot apply. I can't put this, like, down in, in uh, the, the, the wheels of my life. I can't, like, I can't get them to contact pavement in all of the ways that uh, Jesus is teaching and asking his people to obey. And, and, and that's fine. Um, I just recognize, like, this body of teaching is magnificent. It's hard to live Uh, but it's good. And like Whitney said this morning, like when you start to read the scriptures, prepare to be changed, especially if you have a a mindset of obedience. So uh, we are uh, concluding the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount with a series of hard words. Uh, He kind of began, I mean, the whole Sermon on the Mount, really, there's some hard words within, uh, but he's like, he's, he's cueing in on anxiousness, and on a judginess, and on an unwillingness to rely and to depend upon him. And then he moves into this series of contrasts with two gates. One is narrow, one is wide. He is only one of those gates, the narrow gate. He himself will only be on the narrow path. Choose one. This morning, two trees and fruitfulness. One bears good fruit, the other bears diseased fruit. And then next week, Build your life on a firm foundation, either one made of rock and stone that will hold you up in the storms of life, or one that is built of sand that will be swept away when the storms of life come. So what we're starting to see in really clear detail is that there's a way that Jesus approves and there's a way that Jesus condemns. We're seeing this contrast. The fruit that Jesus is looking for in the life of his believing people is not only believing his teaching, not only believing what he said, his doctrine, but also being and doing what he says that we should be and do. That is uh, to say, we, that, that doctrine, that belief about the way the world works is meant to move us into a kind of way of life. Anytime two people get together and live in a certain way together, that forms and shapes culture. So we have doctrine that we believe, but then we also have a culture and a way of life. And our our culture and our doctrine should uh, increasingly be coming together over time. Now, hard words surrounded by ample care and concern can often be really helpful. Hard words from a friend surrounded by ample care and concern can be incredibly helpful. Though we might wince at them, they're good for us. This week has been full of a mouthful of hard words uh, for me. I have been a part of numerous conversations that have been very difficult, uh, both as a recipient, hearing things about myself and the way that I operate, as well as having hard words uh, for friends. So, Well, being on a number of those conversations, I've had an opportunity to speak some hard words to friends. And while hard words to a friend can be difficult, what they produce in a humble hearer can be extraordinary, can be so honorable, so rich, so good. Um, The Proverbs teach, the wounds of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. 
The words of a friend, the words who you know has your best interest in mind, you can trust them. They may hurt, but you are, there's a willingness because of their love for you to look into them and to see if there is truth there that ought to be applied. But an enemy, somebody that just comes with flattery, they just multiply. It's good, it's good, it's good. You're good, you're awesome, you're awesome, you're awesome. The kisses of an enemy are excessive. Now, we like, I know I like, I value straight shooters. I like it when people like will just, will not beat around the bush and they'll just come with it. Jesus is the straightest kind of shooter. He cares deeply about his people and he comes to his people with hard words. And so that's what this text is about today. It's about hard words. He starts out by saying, beware of false prophets. That's my first point. It's his first point. Beware of false, false prophets. Then this morning, we're going to look at um, the need to distinguish between different kinds of fruit, good fruit and bad fruit. And then towards the end, we're going to see that Jesus is the king of all. And as the king of all, he's actually the judge of all. We like to see him as lowly and gentle, and that is true. He's described his heart to us in that way, 100% true. And he will judge the living and the dead. So there is a hard edge to Jesus for those who refuse to bend the knee. And there is a beautiful edge and way of life to Jesus for those who do bend the knee. So he comes right out of the gates, kind of swinging. Verse 15, beware of false prophets. Why is he bringing us this warning? What's at stake here? What's at stake is the purity and the beauty and the unity of his church. He, brought, he bought us with his blood. He gave his life to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us as his own possession, as his own people. So we are, because he has set his sights on us, his treasured people. You, follower of Jesus, are his treasure. He loves you. He leans into you. He works on behalf of you when you don't have a clue what you are doing. He is behind the scenes moving the order of our life in a way that will ultimately bring him glory and praise and be good for you, even where there is suffering and where it's difficult. If Jesus gave his life to reconcile us with our Father so that we would have peace with the Father, and not only that, but he meant to gather us together into a diverse community. And if he's given us his spirit who unifies his people and sanctifies, that, that's a fancy word that means purifies, makes us more Christ-like. He's given us his spirit to unify us, to sanctify us, to empower us, and to draw more people into his kingdom through us. If that's true, then he cares deeply about what you and I feed ourselves on, what forms us, and he cares deeply about what we feed to other people. He cares deeply about the truth in life. According to Jesus, there is such thing as a prophet who is false, an imposter, a poser. A prophet, if, just to give a clear, brief summary definition, a prophet is someone who speaks God's words they say what God wants them to say with God's authority behind them under his blessing. He's glad to use them. Now, God's words, they nourish human souls. Right? And we know that in our human experience, that people's words nourish our souls too. The Proverbs say that pleasant words are like a honeycomb. They're sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. 
your friends, when they encourage you, when they build you up, when they say something kind and true about you at the same time, that has a kind of healing effect on us. And yet, God's words nourish us in a way that goes far beyond human words, a more full way they nourish us. Prophets before the age of Jesus would often declare God's words to people who were disobedient to God. So in the Old Testament, the prophets, the people of Israel were regularly off the rails and God would send the prophets to them to say, thus says the Lord, come back. If you do that, this is going to happen to you. But if you do this, you will live under the blessing of most high God, the Almighty. So the prophets would regularly come to Israel declaring not only future events and occurrences, but also just speaking straight truth to them. Which means the people of Israel would often have to hear and bear up under hard words. Prophets brought hard words. Not only that, but the prophets would help Israel distinguish. They would guide her leaders and and those who were prophets of the people. They They would come and and guide leaders in tough situations. So they're in a bind. You go this way, you're going to lose some. You go this way, you're going to lose some. God says, go this way. Again, hard words. God would use prophets like Moses and the big ones, the famous ones, right? There there are minor prophets in the Bible who wrote small books of the Bible, and then there are major prophets who wrote the larger books in the Bible. You got guys like Moses. You have people like Isaiah. Then you have prophets like Samuel and Nathan a female named Deborah. These prophets were used by God to call the people of God back to him. So you could say that he was using prophets to establish his kingdom rule over the hearts of his people, Israel. To be a citizen of the kingdom of God means that God is ruling over the hearts of men and women. A mark of a prophet was that they communicated true and authoritative words from God. Now, Jesus comes to us in this text and he says, beware of false prophets. Why? For they come to you in sheep's clothing, but internally, inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. And then he gives this clarifying direction to us. You'll know them by their fruits. You'll know them by their way of life. A false prophet isn't necessarily the kind of person who comes teaching outright heresy and saying that God approves of it. That is 100% a false prophet, but that's not always what a false prophet looks like. A false prophet can also be someone who twists God's words or proclaims God's words, yet their way of life is not at all consistent. So they could declare what is true and their way of life isn't consistent, or they, it might not be outright heresy. It might just be uh, some, uh, just, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I just lost it publicly right in front of all of you. Diluting the gospel, diluting the truth of who God is. A false prophet can be a really good Bible teacher, but an entrenched hypocrite. Jesus says, beware. Why? Because the purity and the beauty and the unity of his church, his people, is at stake. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. So what this means is that what we can gather by implication is that people teach with both their mouths and their conduct. We teach and we learn from one another, not only by the words that we say, but also by our way of life, which can make false prophets really hard to spot. They look like God's people. They talk like God's people. To the untrained eye, they're a fit, but something 
stinks. Something's off. Something's corrupt. Beware. Keep your eyes on them. According to Jesus, we will be able to recognize them by their fruits. Now, many of us, we can think of somebody in our life who came declaring one thing, and yet we come to find out years later, the underside of their life was completely inconsistent with what they were teaching. The first subtlety of a false prophet is that they appear Christian, and we like what they say. The Old Testament prophet, a guy named Jeremiah, he was known as a a weeping prophet because he was um, coming and calling to Israel at a time when Israel was, uh, they they had gone astray. They were worshiping idols and they were off the rails, consistently rejecting him. And yet he was staying and remaining faithful to the Lord and declaring what the Lord told him to say. And so at one point in Jeremiah 23, he comes to the people of Israel and he says this, thus says the Lord of hosts. That's another way you could say that is thus says the Lord of armies. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. So there's all kinds of other prophets rising up in competition to his word. And Jeremiah says that they're filling you with vain hopes. They're speaking about future events, but those are not going to come to pass. Why? Because they speak visions of their own minds, something they made up in their own minds. They're not speaking from the mouth of the Lord. And so these false prophets would say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it's going to be well with you. You despise the word of the Lord, but you'll be fine. It'll work out. And to everybody who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. We have to train ourselves to see and to distinguish false teaching. Are false prophets the same as false teachers? There's nuance here. But overall, I think it is helpful for us to treat false prophets the same as we treat false teachers and vice versa. So look at uh, Peter's words. They'll be up on the screen here. Peter was the first of the disciples uh, that Jesus called to himself. Additionally, he uh, occupied the first, his name was first in every list of the disciples anywhere in the New Testament. Seen as the leader of the early church. He would write in his second letter to a persecuted church in in verses one through three, he'd say, but false prophets arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. So we've got something that is like another thing. And he's saying after the comma here, they both, the false prophets and the false teachers, secretly brought in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. And because of that denial, they would bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They're really all about themselves. Both false prophets, false teachers exploit and weaken the church with false words about God our Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And then the Apostle Paul would have something to say as well. As he's writing to a young pastor named Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 6, verses 2 through 4, Paul would say, teach and encourage these things, Timothy. If anyone teaches other doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, that's a way of life, he is conceited, understanding nothing, but has a sick interest in disputes and arguments over words. Again, false prophets, false teachers, 
do not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus. Now, people like this very much exist in our community. They very much exist in our feeds online. They very much exist in our midst. The Apostle Paul, he would go on near his death Uh, He would go on in Acts chapter 20 to encourage the Ephesian church. And part of his encouragement, or after his encouragement, he gave them warning that sounded very much like the warning that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 7. He would say, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves, notice that language. Jesus used ravenous wolves. Paul uses fierce wolves. They will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That's language for ravenous, devouring. And from your, among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things in order to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, Paul says, be alert, beware. Remember what Jesus said, beware of false teachers. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears by his way of life. They got to see that, the consistency in his message and his life. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. The word of his grace is shorthand for the gospel, which is able to build you up. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, as we believe it and receive it and take it in, it's able to build us up and to give, he says, you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Hold on to that word sanctified. It's a word that means to become more and more like Christ over time. We're going to come back to that towards the end. Now, here's the second point. Part of our sanctification Part of our process in becoming more and more like Christ is learning to distinguish good fruit from bad fruit. Jesus is admonishing his people to learn to distinguish good fruit from bad fruit. Why is it so important? Because Jesus knows that talk is cheap. We know that talk is cheap. If you're confused about the word fruit here, we're not talking about fruit from trees, though he's comparing the human life to a tree that produces something. Fruit means what is produced. So a tree produces fruit and a human life produces fruit as well. A way of life, attitudes, actions, behaviors, words, etc. The fruit of a person's life reveals the substance of their character. And not only does the fruit of a person's life reveal the substance of their character, it also reveals their source of authority. Who it is they trust. Who it is they're looking to. So according to Jesus, for every follower of God, what they say and how they live needs to be growing in consistency. We say we believe one thing. We have a doctrine. We have a confession of belief that Jesus is Lord. And if that is true, then our way of life needs to, over time, be growing in consistency with that. Jesus is not speaking of those who make mistakes, who blunder all over ourselves like every single person in this room does. He's speaking of those who are corrupt, who are posers, imposters, self-seeking. He says, you'll know the tree by the fruit. Notice, both trees bear fruit. 
He says, you'll recognize them by their fruits. Verse 16, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Kind produces kind. That's what he's getting at there. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So it's not that one does produce and one doesn't produce. It's that one produces good fruit and the other produces diseased fruit. There's observable evidence that both are alive, but only one is healthy. Uh, Ray Ortland is a, um, an influence of mine. He's, uh, he retired a couple of years ago uh, and still is um, a part of a church called Emmanuel in Nashville. He's an author and professor and theologian and church planter. Um, and he's uh, got a new podcast. Uh, it's called You're Not Crazy. Um, and it's just a podcast to weary Christians. Uh, and he's, he's, he's a proponent of something called gospel culture, building a culture that, is, uh, that, is, that, that lives and eats and, and drinks up the good news of Jesus Christ. And he says uh, this statement that I think is really profound. He says, we can unsay with our culture what we say with our doctrine. What he means is we can have a nice, tidy, doctrinal statement. We can have the theology buttoned down. First, issues of first importance, second importance, third importance. We can have it all buttoned down. The website is tight. We can articulate all of it. It's good to the core. It's right. It's biblical. But our way of life sucks, stinks. We're messing people up in our way of life. We can unsay with a harsh culture when we say we follow Jesus, the one who is gentle and lowly. That's just one example. Now, I'm going to give you a photo here in just a second that's going to be harsh. Uh, it's going to break your brain a little bit when you see it, but it is, a, I think, a prime example of what it looks like to unsay with your culture what you're actually saying with your doctrinal confession. When Trevor turns his phone off, we'll throw the picture up on the screen. Prepare to have the laughs go away. Throw it up. What do you see? Okay. So this group of people is standing under a sign. These people are known for what in history? Okay. Hate, murder, racism, harshness to people who don't look like them or affirm what they believe. What's, what does the sign say above their heads? Their doctrine is solid because that is true. That's the name of, I don't mean all of their doctrine. Don't lose me on that. The, the doctrinal statement that's on the sign is true. Jesus saves, but there is a way of life and there is a culture that unsays that statement to a host of people who have different levels of pigment in their skin. We can unsay with our culture what we say with our doctrine. So in one sense here, the KKK is right. Jesus does save people, those who believe in him, those who bend the knee to him as Lord, but he also judges those who will not bend the knee. 
He judges those who do not believe in him. He judges those who are not born again. So, that presents, that, that presents some contrast and some uh, paradox for us. Because we should strive to see Jesus as both gentle, you can take the picture off the screen, gentle and judge. Jesus will judge the living and the dead. Jesus also describes his heart to his people as lowly in heart, gentle. Coming to his people saying, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? Because I am gentle and lowly in heart. So, Jesus is the king of all. And the king of all is also the judge of all. He says in verse 19, every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, which means that someone will give orders for those trees to be cut down, and someone will give orders for that fire to be stoked. Let's take Jesus at his word. He's serious. He's not playing. He is good, and he is kind, and he is generous, and he is judge. In righteousness. In him there is no error. He does not lie. He does not only see a part of the truth. He sees all of the truth always because he is the truth. Now, notice what Jesus says also in verse 21. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So what he's implying here, it's kind of funny language, but the way it's translated, but not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom. But those who will enter the kingdom are the ones who does the will, who do the will of my Father in heaven. Now, does this make you, church, slow down for a minute and consider the words in front of you? I hope so. I hope it makes us like, like push back for a moment and want to get after what in the world does Jesus mean by this statement? Because that should scare us. That should cause us some pause should cause us to consider our way of life, to consider what it is that we're believing, to consider who it is that we're trusting. I believe our proper response to this statement is to pause and to consider not only the doctrine that we believe and teach, but also our way of life. We should consider not only the doctrine of our favorite Jesus people, but also their way of life too. The fruit of those people, pastors, theologians, thought leaders, politicians, This last Friday, President Biden uh, tore Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8 out of its biblical context and applied it to the military. It was gross. It was wrong. Isaiah 6, 8 is, who will go for us? Who's going to go and reveal my glory to the nations and call the nations to repentance and belief? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord. Send me. This is the leader of the free world, a lifelong Catholic, a man who would proclaim to know Christ, absurdly misappropriating scripture. Now, pray for Biden. Let's not condemn Biden. But let's take the interpretation of the scriptures very, very, very seriously. Just because a person says they are something does not mean that we should just be stupid and naive and take them at their word every single time. Just because a person declares that they are a follower of Christ does not mean that we should take them at their word if their way of life stinks. 
We should not be gullible and allow them to manipulate us. That was proved to me, just as a final comment on his use of Isaiah 6-8, that Christian nationalism doesn't only exist on the right, it exists on the left in this country too. According to Jesus, who enters the kingdom of heaven? According to Jesus, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. So we've got to ask, what is the will of our Father? What is the will of our Father in heaven? We believe into Jesus. That we take him at his word. That we exalt him as the Christ. That we leverage our trust and obedience in his direction. And this belief, as we believe into him, as we rest the the weight of our lives on him, it produces a, a way of life, of trust and of dependence. Now, I'm listening to a a podcast right now about uh, the man and the church culture that ultimately influenced me to plant a church. Uh, It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Has anybody been listening to this podcast? A handful of people have been listening to this podcast. Uh, There's probably no other um, human that has been more influential to me in the direction of planting a church than Mark Driscoll. And I stopped listening to him in 2014 because I recognized that the fruit of his life was not consistent with his declaration. I recommend the podcast, but I do not recommend the podcast as a case study or as a means of your entertainment. I recommend you listening to the podcast to cultivate discernment and as a costly lesson in the value of humility, not as a train wreck to entertain yourselves with. One of the recurring conversations that I've had with fellow Acts 29 pastors, Mark Driscoll was influential in, um, in beginning um, Mars, uh, Acts 29 as a church planting network of which we are a part. Um, one of the recurring conversations around Driscoll and Acts 29 is wrestling with the, the fruitfulness, the seeming fruitfulness of Mars Hill and Mark's ministry. People were getting baptized by the thousands upon thousands upon, maybe hundreds of thousands of people in this church in Seattle and a handful of other locations. People have, there are 700 plus Acts 29 churches globally. So much apparent good has come from it. The fruit was there, but there was rottenness in the core and right under the skin. But because so many people were getting saved and so many churches were being planted, we all were tempted, every one of us, myself included, and I did, overlook the toxicity, the abuse, the self-promotion and pride that was under it. Is everything that he said and taught to be thrown out? No, not a chance. But I was not training my sense of discernment. And yet the Lord has seen fit to bring great good out of him and out of his ministry. And I pray for him that he will... uh, he will practice repentance in the way that people who are, have the ability to call him to repentance as former elders as well as other leaders, um, that he would respond to that. There are people, I'm not just referring to him or even referring to him right now when I say this. I'm just going to say it and try to be as neutral as I can as I say it. There are people leading very impressive ministries who Jesus will repudiate. Massive congregations, movements of churches. Jesus will repudiate some of these leaders. 
They're not loyal to him. They're loyal to him to themselves. And according to him, according to his words, this isn't me making this stuff up, man. He will cast them away from his presence because they do not bend the knee and believe, but rather they are serving themselves and using him to do so. Verses 22 and 23, Jesus says, on that day, speaking of the day of judgment, the day where men and women come before him, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do all kinds of mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. On the day of judgment, Jesus is going to shoot straight. He's not playing games. People will come and they will say, Lord, Lord. They're calling him Lord. They've got the positional thing right in the way that they're approaching him. You could say that they're Christ-centered even. Their doctrine about who Jesus is is good, but they're not submitted to him. Only in word, not in life. Didn't we proclaim your name in huge ways? Do all kinds of mighty works. The doctrinal statement on the website is solid gold all the way to the bottom. Not only that, but there seemed to be so much power in and among us. Even the demons listened to our rebukes. So much fruit. People getting saved and baptized. And then the judge's face will tighten. I don't know you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. Workers of chaos and disorder and dysfunction. Self-serving ways. Pride. The man... And the woman who truly believes that Jesus is Lord and submits ourself to him to be born again has a distinct way of life given to us by the Spirit. And all over our New Testaments it is described. So I want us to listen to the brother of Jesus, a man named James, leader of the church in Jerusalem after Jesus' resurrection. Listen to this. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his or her... Good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, if it's there, don't boast and be false to the truth as if it's not. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but actually, listen to these descriptors. It is earthly, unspiritual, even... He's describing bitter jealousy and selfish ambition as demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above, so here's some contrast. The wisdom from above, what is it like? When this kind of wisdom comes into the heart of a person who believes and follows and loves the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, that kind of wisdom comes in, comes home to our lives as pure the fruit of our lives is peaceful, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is, just, this is but one description of the life and the style of God's people. 
Frederick Dale Bruner, a theologian that we've been quoting quite a bit uh, in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, a Jesus without judgment, a Jesus who does not care about the content of people's lives doesn't exist. There is a sternness, a toughness about the Christian message that is avoided at our peril. They're hard words that come to us from the Lord Jesus himself that we must take in and consider, not just brush off. I know at times, like when I've read the passage, um, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff in your name and I'll say away from me? That passage, I'm like, I, I like skim over it quickly and just move on to something else because it unsettles me and I don't know what to do with it. And so I just move on. And we would do well to take Jesus at face value. So what do we do? We take him at face value. We train ourselves to recognize and to know false teachers. We train ourselves over a lifetime, over a series of moments to distinguish good fruit from bad fruit. And there are gonna be times when it is just crazy confusing. We don't know what to do, but listen for that like, that twist in your soul, in your conscience. Listen for it. Pay attention to it. Submit it to the Lord. And it would be good for us also to hold Jesus in high regard, not only as our Lord, as our Savior, the one who saves us from the Father's wrath, protects us from the, the wrath against ungodliness and evildoers, not only the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, but also to take him at his word and recognize that he's judge. He's the one who's going to sort people out. We can also answer the question, are we about what Jesus is about? Are we about the good news of his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection for us? Are we about that? Are we centered on that? About it for others? Jesus was all about doing the Father's will. The way that, a primary way that Jesus did, was even empowered to do the Father's will is he believed the Father. He rested the whole weight of his belief on him. He took him at his word, he followed him. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven will enter the kingdom. Jesus could only do the Father's will because he was who the Father wanted him to be. He rested, he believed, he relented. He obeyed. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus learned obedience over the course of his life. Just opportunity after opportunity to to. That moment in the garden could not have been the first time Jesus said, your will be done, not my will be done. I imagine that that kind of mindset and heart posture was practiced over the course of his life. For when you were slaves of sin, Paul writes to the Romans, we're almost done here, you were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at that time? When you're slaves of sin, what fruit were you getting? You're getting things of which you are now ashamed. For the end of these things is death. Those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin, through belief in Christ, through relenting, being born again, now we are slaves of God. And not just slaves of God, but sons and daughters of God. The fruit that we get as we rely on Him and look to Him and believe Him, it leads to sanctification. That's the process of being made more and more like Christ. And the end of sanctification is eternal life. Now, I want to end just with this briefly. 
as we um, are born again, as we are followers of Jesus Christ, as we are regenerated from the inside by the power of the Holy Spirit, according to Titus chapter 3, washed through regeneration by the Spirit of God, He regenerates us, He gives us a new nature, He gives us a new will, He gives us a new mindset, and out of that comes a way of life. And the way of life is described in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 11. I just want to read them. Jesus opened his mouth and he taught the people, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, who mourn sin. Poor in spirit means see our bankruptcy and our need of God's intervention in all ways. Blessed are the meek, not those who push their weight around, but those who look to the Lord for what they deserve. They shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The righteousness that comes through Christ, they'll be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. They'll receive mercy. Those who extend mercy will be given mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. With all the rights of firstborn sons, it's using Roman adoption language in the first century. Women and men together having the rights of firstborn sons. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, some people will come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things? And he'll say, away from me. You need to hear this a whole multitude of people that no one can count from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue will not hear away from me. We will hear something altogether different. Come, enter your master's rest. Well done, good and faithful servant who has stayed true and conquered, not by our might, but by the testimony that Jesus Christ is Lord and there is no other. Father, help us to know you. Help us to not, uh, help us to see the places that we serve ourselves by serving you and to relent. Jesus, by the power of your spirit, become more real to your people. Please, that we would not just hold you in the realm of concept, God who is aloof and far away, not really interested in the details of my life, but that we would see you as the God who is here, imminent and present, not a concept, but a person with his people, dwelling among us, guiding us, overseeing us, loving us all the way to the very, very end. We will persevere, Jesus, because you have persevered on our account. And so we continue to look to you. In Jesus' name, amen.